Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Danielle Tate, a maternal fetal medicine specialist and the maternal medical director of TIPQC. Today's discussion will focus on the rising rates of congenital syphilis. We are excited to have with us today two amazing physicians, Dr. Kate Neely and Dr. Katie Huffstemmer. Dr. Kate Neely is a medical officer with the Division of STD Prevention at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and adjunct faculty in the Emory Department of Gynecology and Obstetrics. Dr. Katie Huffsteller is a second-year Gilstrap Fellow. This is a great fellowship through the CDC Foundation for OBGYNs within five years of residency graduation to pursue public health after residency. Through her fellowship, Dr. Huffsteller currently works in the Division of STD Prevention at the CDC, and she is also adjunct faculty in the Emory Department of Gynecology and Obstetrics. Dr. Huffsteller will be starting MFM Fellowship at EVMS this summer. We are so honored to have you both join us today. Welcome. Thanks so much, Dr. Tate. It's such a pleasure to be here. We are so happy to have you. And we'll just jump right into the discussion because I'll tell you in the state of Tennessee and really the nation, this is definitely a topic that we are very much so ready to hear about, learn about, and get to work on making sure we're doing the right things for the patients. Dr. Mealy, can you share a little more about your career and what has sparked your interest in medicine and your interest in syphilis? Sure, I'd be happy to. So my interest in sexually transmitted infections actually goes all the way back to high school. So it was the 1990s, and in hindsight, it makes sense that I threw myself into organizing a full day of no classes for our whole school so that we could all learn about STI prevention with a focus on HIV. And by the time I found my way to medical school, I was what folks euphemistically call a non-traditional medical student, which is the nice way to say that I was older than everyone else. But my pre-medical school career was in nonprofit management. And immediately prior to going back to school, I worked with gender health to improve reproductive health care across Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And then I ultimately did OBGYN residency at UNC Chapel Hill, which I loved, and then found my way back to public health via the Gilstrap Fellowship, um, which is what Katie uh, is doing right now. And most excitingly, I was able to work on syphilis, which is both my favorite pathogen and one that is in dire need of attention from perinatal health clinicians across the United States. What a great journey. We are so excited to have you on the CDC team and all the work that you're doing. Dr. Huffseller, tell me the same. Can you share a little bit more about your career thus far? Yes, um, absolutely. And first of all, thanks for having us again today. So my interest in medicine started in childhood. Both of my parents were in the medical field. My dad was a nurse. My mom was a stenographer. So I spent a a good amount of time in the hospital, um, and I was inspired by many of their stories. 
I also really loved science growing up and also learning how the body works. So it just naturally made sense to pursue a career in the medical field. I didn't seriously consider pursuing medical school, though, until the beginning of the senior year of college. I was between pursuing medicine, becoming a barista in New Zealand, or becoming a microbrewer, a little variety. But my research mentor at the time, Dr. Schmidt, suggested that I apply and really encouraged me to apply to medical school, commenting on my love for science and also my steady hands using a micro pipette, which I have not touched since. But everything kind of fell into place afterwards. But I, I probably wouldn't be truly a physician today if it wasn't for his great mentorship. As far as public health, my interest developed iteratively. Um, in high school, after college, I worked at a community-based HIV nonprofit, and that experience forever changed me. In medical school, I led a clinic for the uninsured and went on a rural outreach women's health trip in Peru, which was amazing. In residency, we served a population like many residencies that was largely uninsured or covered by public insurance. And it was through all of this experience, these experiences that I, and a better understanding of medicine, that I recognized how difficulties accessing healthcare may impact a person's overall health and well-being. And additionally, in residency, I always wanted to know why, why we do things and where the guidelines came from and how they were developed. And so it really kind of perfectly aligned with public health and those interests. So that's why I pursued the Gilstrap Fellowship. And yeah. Well, great. You know, while those are all noble professions, I'm so glad you chose medicine and specifically <laughs> public health because we definitely need all the great physicians in this area. And so glad you are pursuing this career. Well, as you both know, the CDC STD surveillance data was recently published. Can you give our listeners a sense of what syphilis rates look like in the United States today, especially among women of reproductive age? Absolutely. Syphilis rates continue to rise each year, and among women, the increases are particularly alarming. So over one year, from 2021 to 2022, the primary and secondary syphilis rate among women increased 19.2%. Wow, that's a, to say the least, significant increase. And congenital syphilis, is that also on the rise? Yes, unfortunately. Congenital syphilis cases also continue to rise each year. In the most recent 2022 surveillance data, 3,755 cases were reported. And this is more than 10 times the 334 cases that were reported just 10 years ago. Wow, 10 times. That, that is an astronomical rise in a short period of time. So I can safely say that in our careers in the women's health field, we may come across this in the near future can you give us a brief review of congenital syphilis so we all are understanding what that is? Absolutely. So congenital syphilis occurs when a pregnant person has untreated or inadequately treated syphilis, and the syphilis is transmitted through the placenta to the fetus during pregnancy. Occasionally, congenital syphilis can also happen when there is a syphilitic lesion that the neonate is exposed to during labor or soon after birth. Transmission can occur at any clinical stage in the pregnant person, but is more likely to happen in early syphilis infections, especially secondary syphilis and with high RPR titers. And congenital syphilis is very serious with a very high morbidity and mortality for the fetus or neonate. And with that, can you describe some of the sequelae of congenital syphilis that we should be looking out for in these patients? Yes, as I mentioned, with the high morbidity and mortality, the most serious complication of congenital syphilis is the risk of death. In particular, either miscarriage before 20 weeks 
stillbirth after 20 weeks, and neonatal death soon after birth. Prematurity or preterm birth at less than 37 weeks is also common, which leads to additional risks associated with the prematurity for the newborn. And congenital syphilis is split into two, early and late congenital syphilis. Early congenital syphilis or infection in the first two years of life may present initially without symptoms or signs of infection. However, some neonates do have findings such as snuffles, which is runny nose or nasal discharge that is very contagious, hepatomegaly, which is an enlarged liver or a rash. They can also have abnormal bone development and even inflammation of the bone. Late congenital syphilis, which is when children are over two years of age, um, includes hearing loss, blindness, abnormal facial features, abnormal teeth, Hutchinson teeth or mulberry molars, and perforation of the hard palate. We can also see musculoskeletal abnormalities, developmental delay, and intellectual disability. Thank you for that thorough description. It definitely sounds like congenital syphilis shouldn't be taken lightly. To shift gears a little bit, I want to think a little bit about racial disparities and just dive there for a few minutes. How are they reflected in the rates of syphilitic infections? Thanks so much, Dr. Tate. So as with all of the bacterial sexually transmitted infections, unfortunately, syphilis highlights racial and ethnic disparities in our nation. In the 2022 data, non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaska Native women had a rate of primary or secondary syphilis that was 10 times that of non-Hispanic white women and is almost seven times the national average. The rates of syphilis were second highest among non-Hispanic Black women, more than two times the national average, and non-Hispanic Native American or other Pacific Islander women, also more than two times the national average. And with congenital syphilis cases, the rates were similar, with the highest rate of reported congenital syphilis cases among non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaska Native people. And when we take a step back and think about the factors that contribute to this, they include things like systemic racism, implicit bias, and healthcare strain. There's also deep-rooted mistrust of the medical and public health establishment, especially around syphilis, due to the U.S. Public Health Service or USPHS syphilis study at Tuskegee, which was conducted from 1932 all the way until 1972 to observe the natural history of untreated syphilis. As part of the study, researchers did not collect informed consent from participants, and they did not offer treatment, even after it was widely available. Wow, that's terrible. Thank you for sharing, Dr. Reilly, and giving us that historical perspective as well. I understand that 2022 marked the 50th anniversary of the ending of the USPHS syphilis study at Tuskegee. So it is an important time to remember the people who were mistreated. What do you think we as clinicians should be doing to address these racial disparities? I think that we as clinicians need to recognize the continued presence of systemic racism in healthcare, and we consciously need to make every effort to improve this. This includes holding each other accountable, ensuring equitable access for reproductive health care for all people, including people who are pregnant and ensuring that we are providing timely and evidence-based care. We can do this through advocating for our patients and working with community-based organizations to improve the ability of people who are pregnant, especially those populations that are most vulnerable, to access care. I agree with all of that. And I think we also need to be talking with our patients about these disparities and establishing trust with patients so that they feel comfortable talking with us about their sexual health and potential risk factors for syphilis. 
We need to counsel and educate patients about partner treatment and ensure patients and their partners can complete recommended treatment by discussing treatment and and validating patient concerns. And we need to stay up to date and follow the syphilis screening and testing guidelines for all of our patients, whether it be before, during, or after pregnancy. So true. Can you describe the CDC recommendations for syphilis testing during pregnancy? And what is the rationale for this screening algorithm? Yes, absolutely. CDC recommends syphilis screening for all pregnant people at their first prenatal encounter. For people who present for care outside of the traditional prenatal care and who have risk factors for not following up, they should have syphilis screening during that encounter. And this is what I recommend when I get calls about every early pregnancy issue from the emergency department, even when it's 3 a.m. This initial screening is actually mandated in at least 45 states, and this includes Tennessee. Syphilis screening can be performed using the traditional algorithm with an initial non-treponemal antibody test, such as the RPR or the VDRL, or by using the reverse sequence algorithm screening with treponemal antibody testing, such as the EIA or CIA. And who exactly should get repeat syphilis testing in pregnancy? Is that an everyone thing or certain patients? Thanks, Dr. Tate. So people with high individual or community risk for syphilis need to receive testing again at 28 weeks gestation and again at delivery. And I always remind myself of that old metaphor about swimming with sharks. So if my patient is minding their own business and doing all the right things, they are still much more likely to get bitten if they're swimming in a pool of sharks, or in this case, having sex in a community with a lot of syphilis. So I think most clinicians know if they're in a community with lots of syphilis, But if you don't know, you can search CDC STI Atlas and look up the primary and secondary syphilis case rate among reproductive aged females in your county. And in counties that exceed the Healthy People 2030 goal of 4.6 cases per 100,000 population, it makes sense to offer that additional syphilis testing during pregnancy, as well as to sexually active females and their sex partners. And I'll just add um, that it's important to know your jurisdictional guidelines as some states have implemented additional required syphilis testing during pregnancy in response to rises in congenital syphilis. And while Tennessee has not yet added that requirement for the third trimester or delivery-based syphilis testing, states are changing every day. And it's important to be aware of this possibility. I was also curious and just quickly searched a few of those, um, a few counties in Tennessee on the Atlas Plus. Davidson County has a syphilis rate of 10 per 100,000, which is above the threshold. Shelby County has a syphilis rate of 43.2 per 100,000. And I actually looked at my hometown as well, Chattanooga, and Hamilton County has a syphilis rate of 6.8 per 100,000. All of these are above the threshold that Kate mentioned. And then I'll add that additional risk factors for screening at 28 weeks and at delivery also include persons at increased risk of syphilis acquisition. And some, this includes sex with multiple partners, transactional sex, late entry to prenatal care, which is first prenatal visit in the second trimester or later, no prenatal care, methamphetamine or heroin use, incarceration of the pregnant person or their partner, and unstable housing or homelessness. Wow, a lot of things to think about. And I would like to shift gears or just continue the conversation in the direction of treatment. What are the treatment recommendations for pregnant patients at this time? So for pregnant people, they should always be treated with a recommended penicillin regimen for their stage of infection. 
And so for early syphilis, which this includes primary, secondary, and early latent syphilis, this is one shot of benzathine penicillin G, 2.4 million units intramuscularly. For late syphilis, which is late latent or latent of unknown duration syphilis, this is three shots spaced seven days apart. And importantly, during pregnancy, this treatment needs to be started as soon as possible. You need to get your patient in for a shot and not just wait until the next scheduled appointment. Well, what else can we do to make sure people who are pregnant get the treatment that they need? So if, if a patient needs more than one shot and the next shot is more than nine days after the last, you have to start the treatment course again. So making sure that this interval is at seven days is important. Penicillin is the only acceptable treatment during pregnancy. So if your patient has a true allergy, they need to be desensitized and then treated. And I'll jump in and add that it's also really important to help patients get all of their sex partners tested and treated as needed, because we know that reinfection is a huge reason that we're seeing these rises in congenital syphilis. Agree. And we, we also need to be calling our local health departments as soon as possible to let them know that we have a person who is pregnant who has tested positive for syphilis. It is critical that we don't rely on the automatic laboratory-based reporting because this usually doesn't communicate that the patient is pregnant. And with so much syphilis these days, our health departments need help prioritizing their outreach. And I'll jump in and add that if you're having trouble getting benzathine penicillin G in your clinics, given the recent penicillin shortage, there is a new supply of this medication that's being temporarily imported to the United States. So if you need access to that, there's great information available from the FDA. Great to know. So once that patient tests positive, how should a positive syphilis test in pregnancy be followed? Thanks, Dr. Tate. So first, you need to get a titer on the first day of treatment. So usually that's an RPR. And then if your patient is treated before 24 weeks gestation, you repeat that titer after eight weeks and again at delivery. But if they are treated after 24 weeks gestation, it's appropriate to just wait and repeat that titer at the time of delivery. And remember that an adequate response is a four-fold decrease in titer. But patients might not have time for this to happen during pregnancy. And so we always need to be looking out for any signs of reinfection. And so this would be suspected if there's a known exposure, signs or symptoms, or a four-fold increase in the titer. And remember, you can always consult infectious diseases as needed. Syphilis is hard and it's complicated. And infectious diseases likes to be involved in complicated cases. That makes perfect sense. It sounds like a team effort is the best approach to making sure patients are treated appropriately. I know interpreting syphilis test results can be complicated, especially for someone who may not do it very often. What are a few tips to ensure an accurate diagnosis is made? And I, I will absolutely agree too. Syphilis can be very confusing, but there are some clinical pearls and resources that can help. First and foremost, I've, it's always important to make sure to perform a physical exam and a thorough history in any person testing positive for syphilis. And this exam should include a urogenital exam with a speculum, perirectal exam, and an oral exam. Really, you should be doing an exam of any area of sexual exposure. And sometimes, I say this because sometimes a physical exam finding will help you determine the clinical stage and appropriate treatment regimen. regimen even when the patient history is limited or complicated. And in persons reporting a history of syphilis, it is helpful to reach out to the health department to see if they have prior titers because sometimes they do. And 
it's important to see if there was an appropriate decrease from a previous titer or if this is a new infection. I encourage you again to communicate with the local health department as they can be very helpful. But what are clinicians supposed to do when they have a tough case? For example, test results they don't know what to do with are allergies that can be difficult to manage. First, everyone should download the latest CDC STI app. You can do so by going to your mobile phone app store and searching CDC STI, and it's free and it should pop right up for you. Then to answer your primary question, if you need help managing syphilis or any other STI, and you can wait a few days for a response, you can go to the STD Clinical Consult Network, and that's available at www.stdccn.org. They have a free warm line, and we'll get back to you about all of your questions, including complicated cases dealing with pregnancy. And then I'll also add that if you want to buff up on your STD knowledge, you can search National STD Curriculum, which provides free educational modules for you and all of your learners. I use these all the time with my residents and find them very useful. Those are great resources and it sounds like they are very accessible at all times. So thinking about prevention, which is a big part of our talk today, what recommendations do you have for reducing rates of syphilis? I think I touched on this earlier, um, but again, I want to reiterate, talking to your patients about their sexual behavior, such as sexual partners, their partner's partners, and prevention methods is important. Ask your patient about risk factors, such as substance use, and educate patients on the signs and symptoms of STI so that they know when to get tested. And additionally, testing for syphilis when indicated is important. Any person that presents with STI symptoms or an STI exposure should also be tested for syphilis and really HIV and hepatitis for that matter. And every pregnant person should be screened for syphilis during every pregnancy. And we also, again, I want to say this again, we need to be looping in the health department in cases of syphilis during pregnancy as soon as it is diagnosed. And please, please, when you get that call at 3 a.m. from the emergency department about a person with an early pregnancy, Ask them to get a syphilis test as well as good contact information for the patient. Thanks, Katie. I'll just jump in and reinforce that that is so important. We know that more than 30% of pregnant people with a congenital syphilis outcome had no prenatal care, but a portion of these people likely did touch the healthcare system in some way. Clinicians and staff in emergency rooms, urgent cares, jails, prisons, and addiction medicine services are our partners in this fight against syphilis. And we need to be doing everything we can to support one another, which may include incorporating point-of-care syphilis testing for people who would not otherwise get syphilis testing or follow-up for treatment. It sounds like being part of the prevention is easier than it may feel just hearing about the state of syphilis right now. In your opinion, what are the biggest unanswered research questions as it relates to syphilis? This is a great question. In the 2022 data, more than half of missed opportunities were due to timely testing, but not not enough or inappropriate treatment. One of the challenges with syphilis is that the treatment for syphilis requires a shot. And occasionally, depending on the stage, a patient might require three shots at weekly intervals with very little wiggle room between the doses. And that can be very difficult for patients, especially those with limited transportation, inability to get off from work or inability to find childcare coverage. So studies on alternative treatments, especially in pregnancy, that are either a single dose or orally available would resolve some of these issues. And additionally, improved testing and more studies on the point-of-care testing in a variety of 
settings where a test and treatment can be provided in the same visit would be very helpful. Thank you for sharing that. And it does tie into, you know, one of our biggest conversations in medicine right now, and that's social drivers of health. Those are amazing ways to address that just as we address the overall umbrella of an issue. What are your top takeaways for clinicians as they address syphilis and congenital syphilis, particularly as it relates to prevention? So as we've talked about, syphilis is on the rise, not just in men who have sex with men, but also particularly in women. And it's being passed through pregnancy and leading to devastating outcomes. As clinicians, it is so important to screen early and test often and to encourage your colleagues to do the same in all settings. I totally agree. And it's also very important to refresh your knowledge as syphilis is complicated and it can present in many different ways. I have seen cases that have been sent from one specialist to another for various symptoms. I've even seen individuals who underwent surgery for enlarged lymph nodes when taking a sexual history might have saved the patient from unnecessary CT scans and surgery. And I've seen that same thing, Katie. And I'll also pipe in and add that anyone who's listening to this podcast is already doing the right thing by getting more information about syphilis. So thanks so much for hosting us in this discussion today, Dr. Tate. No, thank you. I appreciate your time. I know you guys are very busy doing the wonderful work that you're doing with the CDC. I have one final question as we wrap things up today. What should patients, their families, their support system, who may be listening in to this podcast today, need to know? What would you want them to know? So when it comes to your health, Understanding your risk factors and when to get tested can help reduce the risk of bad outcomes and complications. But most importantly, you need to find a clinician who listens to you, and together you can work towards having a healthy pregnancy. Well, thank you both again, Dr. Mealy, Dr. Huffsteller, for taking the time to join us today. I know that the population of Tennessee is that much better off. The providers here in the state are that much better through the information you've shared with us today. And I appreciate your time as always. Thank you all for joining us today. Please tune in for more podcasts featuring great national experts as we had today. There will be a link in today's show notes with the information shared and much more regarding congenital syphilis. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.